Well, this uh, series in Nehemiah, uh, if you wanted to pick uh, an Old Testament book, maybe somewhere in the top 10, maybe the top five, this has got to be one of the most interesting narratives that there there is in there. It's just a great story. And uh, so I was happy when... uh, when Kelly asked me to uh, do chapter two, which is where we're at uh, today. And I just want to, if, if you weren't here last week, let me just catch you up very quickly, and then we'll, we'll move into uh, the text. Nehemiah is a story about um, a time in the history of Israel when they had been exiled. They were run out of town and uh, over to Babylon, which would have been uh, present-day Iran. They were over there, and uh, there was for several decades, as a matter of fact. Nehemiah was one of those people, and uh, he became the cupbearer. How he got that gig, nobody really knows, but man, what I, I... I imagined like he had cousins calling him up saying, hey, can you get me on at the palace? You know, uh, you know, because I mean, the cupbearer is pretty, uh, that's, that's a pretty sweet gig, uh, except that if, so, if, you know, if something goes south because the cupbearer brings the cup and then he tastes whatever uh, happens uh, in that cup there as a protection or a protective for the, for the king because, uh, you know, he tastes it, and then the king watches him for a couple minutes and makes sure Nehemiah's okay, and then he has whatever he's going to drink. So it was that kind of a, of a deal. Word comes to Nehemiah that, uh, that there's just horrible stuff going on in Jerusalem as regards to the city and, in particular, the wall around the city. It's just in tatters and... And uh, Nehemiah is, is struck by this in a way that touches him at the deepest part of his being. And he weeps, and he prays, and he fasts. I mean, that's, that's depth right there. And he just does this for, for a time, and he pours his heart out to God, and we get a little bit of that, and Kelly taught from that last uh, week where he's just humble before God. He's in repentance before God. He doesn't know probably what he needs to do about it until he prays and fasts, but he does get some clarity in all of that. And at the end of chapter one, uh, we, we get a hint of what that might be because he asked for favor. He asked for favor to come before the king, who he comes before probably every day, but he's never come before him with the things that he would like to say, I think, at this particular juncture. Now, at chapter two, we move up uh, in the story um, several weeks, actually, after he's prayed and after uh, he's fasted and after he's moved through all of this that uh, that he's done before the Lord. And uh, so why don't we go ahead and just read the text, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll work with it a little bit. It's a, long, it's a long portion, but as I say, it's a good story, so if you stay with it, I think you can put yourself right into it. But just uh, let's just go ahead and, 
and take a look. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the, resident, uh, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are, in we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? 
I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any other claim or historic right to it. So there we are with uh, Nehemiah in Jerusalem. We, we left him last week pretty much on his face before God, uh, needing to just hear from him. And I, I would be remiss in my duties if I did not underscore the factor of prayer and fasting before he went to do any of these things. So important, more important than you can usually communicate to people. Uh, and so I will not, we'll, we'll wait for another time when that can be done more comprehensively. But just let me say, let my voice be one more voice in your direction saying prayer is important, really important, maybe the most important thing you'll learn after you learn that God loves you in Jesus Christ. Really, really important. And fasting, don't even get me started there. Don't even get me started there. And what, what happens when men and women will fast, not to lose weight, though that is a, a nice little uh, factor that at least follows it, a short term usually, but you know, nonetheless. But fasting, when God calls you to do that, is one of the most powerful things. And the problem with it is, it can't really be explained, the dynamic of it, really in terms of a didactic way. When you fast, and here's a book of 500 pages that will give you all the information, on it, it's pretty much just do it. And there's four or five scriptures you might refer to, but boy, if you ever try it, uh, you will see some things happen that you've never seen before. And of course, everything inside of us resists the idea. Uh, I've you know, been a Christian for a while. I've done it several times. I have always been glad I did it. And I never want to do it again. <laughs> I, I, the, only God can make me do that. Because, because uh, my stomach speaks louder than almost anything else. Uh, uh, in my life, and I, I like, and I like, and I like food. How about you? You're, think, you're thinking about what you're going to eat right now after this is over, some of you. And if you weren't before I said that, you are now. So let's uh, let's just take a look. Let's just take a look at two or three things. Three points. I follow my leaders, and uh, and uh, so that's what we'll do. We'll do three points. And so the first thing I want to talk about, you can put that up if it's not up already. There it is. An active faith in the face of fear. An active faith in the, in the face of fear. Now, Nehemiah was sad, and that was what, what was picked up by Artaxerxes, right? What's, what's the matter with you? So apparently he was kind of a pleasant guy to be around most of the time and like that, but he, he picked something up. What he didn't pick up was the fear part, but that was driving a lot of what was going on there in Nehemiah's life. And um, he knew at that point what he was supposed to do. He knew he was supposed to ask the things that he asked there. But he wondered, how, how am I going to do this? See, he knew the king pretty well. He knew the king's moods. 
he knew maybe what could happen. If you, if you know anything about history, uh, these kings can be uh, a little capricious depending on uh, how they're feeling that particular morning, you know, how the, how the coffee came in. And uh, so as a result, it could go several different ways, huh? Where, where, I mean, the two that come to my mind, you know, could have been, you know, uh, what I would call like the soup Nazi uh, approach, which would have been, you know, King, I need to have a leave of absence. And he was, little man, no wall for you. And, 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 and it, it, it could have gone that way or it could have gone very Shakespearean, right? You mean to tell me, right, that after all the years you've worked for me, you dare to come and ask me for time off? Who do you think you are? Off with his head. And so, I mean, it could, it, there, there's just different ways all of this could have gone. And I'm sure that was in uh, Nehemiah's head because he'd probably seen the many moods of Artaxerxes. He probably could have written something uh, about that. But what do we find with him? He's open, he's curious, he's willing, and he's responsive and generous. And, you know, I, I love this little line here. It's kind of a throwaway line, but, but uh, it says, uh, the king says to me, uh, what is it you want? And then he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. That must have been the shortest prayer that was ever prayed. I don't know how he got by with that. Because the king just asked him a question. So I don't know if he just went, excuse me, king. <coughs> oh, God, help me. You know, and uh, however he was able to to pull that off, he says, what is it that you want? And I think it was the last thing he was probably expecting to hear. Well, I need a leave of absence. And while you're at it, uh, I need some authority to enter the region and maybe some resources for the building project. And I don't know, maybe some military troops as well that you might... Uh, <laughs> throw it. And lo and behold, he got all of those things. Isn't that cool? Let me reference fasting and prayer before any of this happened here, right? And I, I, and I don't want to set it up like, uh, like, you know, it's a vending machine. Put your fasting and prayer in and then God will do whatever you want him to do. Because God's going to do, ultimately, what he wants to do, but if you're available to that thing, you can partner with him and pray and fast and stuff happens. It really does. I think if we want to draw a line both into the New Testament and into Southlands Chino uh, here today, that a lot of us live way beneath our privilege because we have a fear of asking. We just won't do it. Uh, you know, for me, I, I was thinking about the environment that I grew up in, and, and you know, it, my family you know, was pretty, pretty much a peanut butter and jelly family, and, and there were some, you know, dysfunctional stuff that took place or whatever, so I don't want to paint, you know, a horribly ugly picture, but no was the, the most common response to, mom, dad, can I? No. 
And it was usually around the fact that whatever I wanted cost some money that they were not willing to spend or didn't have it. Anybody else out there uh, kind of in that? Yeah, it's just, so they weren't ugly about it, but it was just no. So I, after a while, I just said, well, I'm not even going to ask anymore. Number one, I don't like rejection. Number two, it's, I still don't have what I want. So that's, that's when my job career began. <laughs> it did. Cleaning out horse stables on Bluff Road in Montebello. For any of you that knows, knows the lay of the land down there, that's what I did at uh, about age 13. And uh, I got some money. All right. So... Um, but that fear of asking, you know, we don't like rejection and, or maybe we just don't feel worthy. It's like, you know, this is big God, little me, uh, and, and I just don't know whether I want, you know, and that usually reflects uh, something of maybe a, an ignorance of some of the New Testament because Jesus said it, and he said it pretty clear, ask and seek and knock and knock and ask and seek and ask and knock and do it and don't be afraid to do that. And I'll even, you know, tell you some stories about how really I want you to do that. He's looking for people to ask him for stuff. And if that stuff lines up with the things that he would like to do, he is going to be so happy to bring that to you. Huh? Yeah. And I mean, you move into some of Paul's writings. Listen to this one. This is one of my favorite ones to help me out of that funk of the fear of asking. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. More than we ask or imagine. So, so he's saying God can do stuff that will just blow you right off the stage. According to his power that is at work within us. So there's, there's no... There's no question that he can get some things done and get them done in a big way if we are asking uh, according to his will. It's a wonderful thing. And that's our partnership with him. And he often will not do some things that maybe he would like to do with us or through us because we don't ask. And he just wait for somebody else that would ask. And then he'll do it. But, but it's incredible that we don't see ourselves as candidates for that kind of partnership. So can I say that to you, Southlands Chino? Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask. Go ahead and ask. What's the worst he can say? No. Okay. So God said no to you. Grow up. If he said no, that's a good no. Because... Something bad might have happened if he would have said yes, and he knows all about that. But don't let that stop you from asking. Keep asking. Keep asking. You'll get there. And then he says at the end of this little section here, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Right? So he sees all of this, and he doesn't come out the other side saying, yeah, I was pretty clever there before the king, pretty savvy. I know the guy. I know when he's up. I know when he's down. And so I just sort of walked in. I measured the situation. I asked, and we got it done. Right? That's not, that, that's not what he surmised at the end of it. He said, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. 
There's a humility there that usually comes with the prayer and the fasting previously that can turn the hardest heart of Artaxerxes, perhaps, or some other unpredictable tyrant that you might have to deal with, your boss. No offense to the bosses out there. Point two, a timely wisdom and discernment in the face of newfound uh, challenges. So first cat out of the bag, you know, Nehemiah begins to pursue this with everything that he's got, and he finds out uh, uh, that Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, hears about this, and they were not happy at all. These guys were high-ranking politicians in the area. They were not happy at all. One of the things that they might have not been happy about was that both the Horonites and the Ammonites were people groups that God helped Israel remove from the Promised Land so the Israelites could inhabit it. And grudges die hard, don't they? Because this was generations after that took place, but here they are, and they have now been appointed to high-ranking political positions, and they're going, oh no, the Jews are at it again. And they're sending somebody over here to promote their welfare, and we don't like it. So Nehemiah sends, you know, just goes out uh, in the favor of the king and in the, in the name of God. And what does he run into immediately? Opposition, right? Been there? Yeah. Yeah, and so, but more about them later. So he shows up and he comes into town and he's quiet, he's quiet. He just kind of holds up in the hotel or wherever he was and he doesn't say anything to anybody. Nobody knows why he's in town, nobody. And he's just kind of checking the scene out, and he says, you know what, I want to I look at the lay of the land here, but I want to do it at night. We're going to do this at night. And so the sun goes down, and off he goes, and he examines and evaluates what's taking place, but he doesn't talk uh, to anybody about it. Now, look, with all of this great stuff that happened to him, the king's favor, the sense of God's a mission upon him, he could have been very foolish at that point. Because let's remember, Nehemiah is just a man here. He's not even a priest. He's, not, he's, not, he's just a guy with a great job at the palace. That's really all he is at that point. And he could have swaggered into town, right? And looked around and uh, with his military escorts, by the way, right? And announced... Uh, very brazenly that there's going to be a few changes around here, right? And, and began to leak out why he was there. And that would have been the dumbest, stupidest, most foolish thing he could have done because then that releases the powers that be to start intimidating the people not to listen to what he has to say, right? So he's very, it's a timing thing. It's a discernment thing. It's a wisdom thing. And all of that, I believe, came from God and accompanied him in, 
in there. So he knew exactly what he should do and shouldn't do. And he didn't give into the temptation to be probably as enthusiastic about this as he was really feeling. You ever have to hold your enthusiasm from time to time? Yeah, you're, even your, you know, you feel some emotion about something, but you just know it's not time to, to put that thing out on the table yet. You know? If you're a leader, if you're gonna be a leader, that's a good thing to, to learn because you can prematurely let that go at the wrong time and then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It will come back and, and bite you on the posterior. So, so, but when the time came, he gave an electrifying speech after he did this. He got them all together and he entreats them to join him in rebuilding the wall. I mean, you can, you know, I don't know if there's like videos in heaven or anything, but you know, I've got a whole list of things that I want to see that I read about here. And Nehemiah's speech right at this juncture is what I would love to hear and just catch you know, the anointing that was on him at that point when he made that speech and was summoning all of this help uh, to help get that wall built. And in that speech, folks, he testified about, again, the gracious hand of God that put the whole thing together. See, he was, he was very, very clear about his understanding about who's, who's doing this thing. This is God's work right here. This is God's good work. And then it says, and they began. They began. Misdirected ambition or emotional excitement can serve to hijack a good work of God, folks. I mean, you may, you may have all kinds of ducks lined up and you may have again, enthusiasm uh, to spare, but you've got to be able to read the times and where you're in, whether that's the micro or the macro. You've got to know when it is time to do a thing. When, uh, when God sent Jesus to the earth, there, that was a timing thing. And there's a lot of people that might have an argument with God about that because there's a lot of hell that broke loose around the the birth of Jesus. If you ever read the Gospels, you know that that's true. But in the fullness of time, says Paul in Galatians, in the full, just at the right time, Jesus was sent. That would be the, the macro, but the micro would be, you know, um, Mike's coming home after a hard day of work and Lori's got some really bad news, I better feed him first. And that's just, that's just practical. That's the fullness of time right there. Do I get the news? <laughs> do I get the news? Yes, I do eventually, but, but I get some food first. And she understands that that would be better than if she did it. Amen? How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, so we got to be careful of that. Sometimes, folks, silence is our best friend. Huh? That's, you can write that one down your Bible. I mean, uh, <laughs> silence, is our, silence is our best friend unless and until there's an indicator that it's time to speak. And then when it's time to speak, go ahead and speak. Amen? Finally, number three, a bold and confident response in the face of the adversary's tactics. So Sanballat, 
uh, and Tobiah have a, and now we've got a trifecta of opposition here because we've enlisted now uh, a new guy that we meet here, uh, Geshem, the Arab. They weren't very politically correct in those days. That's Geshem, the Arab, you know. Um, but when, but so all three of them get together and I don't know if this was happening at the speech or after the speech or right around the speech, but their response to it was mocking and ridicule, right? So he's calling his people to a thing that God has, has given him to do, and these guys are standing on the sidelines mocking and ridiculing and saying, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling? against the king. And so, so he's challenging them, and I'm gonna guess it was not all by himself. I'm gonna guess it was around a bunch of other people as well. People who knew who these guys were, they were the big
cheese in town, okay? And so they're coming and Nehemiah just blew into town and he's calling them to build the wall, to get this thing done, something that I'm sure connects in their hearts, but then all of a sudden, the authorities have shown up. And now, what are, who do you, who do you think you are, little man, right? Who do you think you are, Mr. Construction Man? Who do you think you are just coming here and saying you're going to do this and you're going to do that? Right? Now, let's draw a line again. The thief comes to kill and to steal and to, des to destroy. And the way that he does that for most of us is that he mocks us and he ridicules us and he questions our legitimacy, and he um, uh, just uh, will, see, I knew that was going to happen, and we're going to stop it. <laughs> Five minutes. <laughs> Questioning their legitimacy. Fear, intimidation, illegitimate questioning, accusation. These are the things that our common enemy will work on you and try to eat you for breakfast every day of your life. He just will. Why? Well, because we're all damaged goods at some level. We're all people with insecurities that we desperately try to cover up or get past or hide or mask or whatever we do, but, but we know what's going on inside of us and the enemy of our souls knows just how he knows the combination, right, to be able to just set us right off. I don't know what he says to you. I've heard some things over the years. How about you're a loser? How about you're a nobody? With all your bad habits, you think God would ever take a second look at you? You are a steaming hot mess of humanity. Why don't you just give up? You call yourself a Christian? What If people at your church knew what your life was all about, they wouldn't let you through the door. And see, this... This is the stream that comes, not just to me, but comes to you as well in your worst moments, and sometimes it isn't even your worst moment. It could be a high moment, and all of a sudden, your antenna is picking up that stuff. And it begins to wear on you, and sometimes you believe what you shouldn't believe. He wants to define you and he wants to define me and imprison us in that definition and tether us to a narrative concerning your past, your present, and your future. That's what he wants to do. But God has another narrative. A narrative of love, of acceptance, of forgiveness, of abundant life of a hope and a future of a way to him through repentance which isn't a bad word at all it's just saying what's true and asking God to take care of that for you and setting you 
free. That's his narrative. And so the Sanballats and the Tobias in our life that have skin and bones and the one that you can't see but's working overtime, all of, we come to the Lord's table today to remember what Jesus has done for us. And if he's never done that for you, then I invite you to that table today and uh, Pastor uh, Ryan is going to help get that done.